0: and welcome to Lunching with Lawyers. Lunching with Lawyers is brought to you by LorettaCrete.com. In this series of podcasts, Loretta explores the world of law graduates. She talks to lawyers, recent law graduates and budding lawyers, seeking alternatives or exploring how to get the jobs that they want. This podcast series is also for those thinking about pivoting or just wanting to do something different. So join Loretta for discussions with lawyers and law graduates about their careers and the paths they took to get to where they are. Let's explore what success in their profession looks like to them.
1: I'm starting now. Dr Paul O'Shea is a commercial and business lawyer with 24 years experience in commercial litigation. He was a senior lecturer in commercial, consumer and banking and finance law at the University of Queensland. He has acted for various parties in some of Australia's leading cases in consumer credit law and has published extensively in professional and academic journals and has written books on credit and consumer law generally. His his last book was called Credit, Consumers and the Law After the Global Storm, published by Rutledge in 2017. Dr Shea has advised governments, national associations of credit providers and consumers, and many individual firms and institutions. He's taught business law in Singapore, Brunei, and oh, that sounds really exciting, Brunei, Thailand and China and his clients from um, Korea as well as Australian based clients dealing with Chinese firms. He's a principal solicitor at O'Shea Lawyers, the firm he established in 2000 whilst working at the University of Queensland where he gained his doctorate in 2012. Yes, he finally did it. Uh, Welcome to Lunching with Lawyers Paul.
2: Hello, Loretta. Lovely, <laughs> lovely to be with you.
1: So what prompted a good Irish Catholic boy from Dalby to head to the Big Smoke of Brisbane and become a lawyer?
2: I was thinking about this the other day. A lot of people can identify when they decided to become lawyers. I can't. <laughs> I, can't. I, I can remember having different ideas about what, why I would become a lawyer um, I was in the cadets at my boarding school and loved the uniform and the sword and dressing up, I think, more than anything else and thought that I could uh, do the law through the army, which was one way to do it. Mm. The army would uh, require only six weeks a year from you, taken over weekends and a couple of camps, and would pay a living wage for you while you were at university and then demand the same amount of years from you um, in the army that they'd funded. But you'd be an officer straight up, you know, and, uh, and you'd get that.
1: You would have made a very dashing officer. Oh, thank sure. you
2: very much. You would get that fancy uniform straight up and uh, you would do a variety of Lloyd. It's actually not a bad life. Mm. And then you could either choose to stay on or, or come out.
1: And so why didn't that happen?
2: Uh, my father hated the idea. Oh, and you always do what your father does. Well, says. when I was 17, I mostly did. Um, he um, was uh, had done his national service, been in the army, and was a, was a very strong pacifist and felt that the waste of time, resources, and young men's lives in, in the army was a very bad thing. Now, this is not a radical left-wing man. This is a fairly conservative country Catholic, but he thought there was a didn't want me going into the army in any capacity
1: so So, but isn't well talking about that catholic past because how many boys were there
2: oh there were five boys four girls in my family so i'm i'm the eldest of nine
1: okay and isn't one of one of the sons supposed to join the priesthood
2: well that seemed that's often an expectation and Mm. it was my second brother down richard who was always marked for it indeed At the University of Queensland in his BA, he did do religious studies and Mm. won the religion prize at King's College, which was a Protestant college. So I don't know how that (laughs) works. But um, um, he didn't. He liked girls too much and married and had three kids. But one of my brothers, Johnny, um, did go into the seminary. He went into the seminary and spent two years in the seminary, three years, three years in the seminary. But again, I think he liked girls too much and that was the end (laughs) of it for him. So he was quite passionate about it. I don't know that any of my sisters thought about becoming nuns.
1: No, No. and you didn't think of joining the priesthood.
2: I had the call once. Mm. I was, and I can tell you exactly when it happened. I was in second year university I was standing on the steps of the Falk and smith building, which is the mm-hmm. main, which I suppose uh, everyone who knows the University of Queensland knows that, on the steps that led into the law library. And it was dark. It was it, was, it was dusk. It was getting dark. And a person arrived, I won't name them because this is a bit private to them, was arriving to walk up the steps, the next steps down at Forgan smith Big, tall man. Very famous man who had left the seminary just that year to come and go into, to do a BA and an LLB at UQ. And I knew him. He'd been at my old school. He'd been a year or two above me at my old school. And I, this urge, this strong feeling came over me that I should go to the seminary to take his place. Really? Yeah. It just came over me i felt that it was physical it was physical it's like a pounding feeling and um, it lasted all oh, 24 hours
1: <laughs> that was enough you and that, and you thought i like girls too
2: much. it well, could have been I like girls too much but it le- but it left so i did feel mm. the call cool. i have had i didn't feel mm. it but um but um I could you know I can find it mm. at university to just having that little Jesuit mass they had at lunchtime. That was enough. <laughs> that, that, that did it. But, um, 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 yes, I felt it, but, um, but it passed. There we go. Well, there we
1: but go. there's another thing that the Ashays are famous for. Oh, well, um, or, no, I don't think they're infamous for it, but they're very musical. So
2: why didn't you become a musician? I wasn't good enough. Really? And becoming a, and, and, well, you can mm. fool the public, but you can't fool the other musicians. All right. So, yeah, I did. Look, I played the piano professionally, um, clubs and pubs and weddings Mm -hmm. and and, and restaurants and stuff, uh, while I was a university student, two nights a week. It was good money Mm. and um, fun. And um, even when I was an article clerk, when I was a clerk, I uh, still was playing the piano at night.
1: And where were you playing,
2: Paul? Uh, Oh, well, my, my permanent gig when I was an article clerk was the Queensland Rugby Club. So,
1: wow, very high brow.
2: <laughs> Oh, it was tremendous fun, and they put on some fancy gigs that I got to to play for as mm. well. I remember when the Italian rugby side came, I was asked, "Can you get someone who can sing?" And I, there was this girl I fancied who was in the um, who was in the uh, uh, music department at UQ, who, who was Italian and who could sing as well as play the piano fantastically. And uh, she and I rehearsed a bit. That's oh, a good excuse for me to, you know, rehearse with her. And she came and she sang and I would play for her for the um, for the Italian rugby side, the Italian national rugby side, and, mm. their, and their trainers and coaches and stuff. And, you know, that. And I remember doing that gig. But I used to do Friday and Sunday nights at the rugby club for for years, I did.
1: And you also played at the UQ staff oh, UQ, club. Oh,
2: the, the gig I had before that mm. was UQ staff club. No near as well paid, but very convenient.
1: mm you uh-huh. know,
2: very convenient, well, that one.
1: Because were you living at the university? At no,
2: the... I never lived on campus. campus. No, I lived with an aged uncle, or great uncle of my father's, and I lived at Red Hill oh, no. uh, in an old Federation cottage.
1: Which yeah. is still there? Or?
2: Yeah, 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 it's still there. It's still right. there.
1: And why did you go to the University of Queensland? Well, in
2: Australia... We have the custom of you go to the university in your home state. That's true. It is not common in Australia to go to universities outside your home Mm -hmm. state, as opposed to America, where it's quite considered quite normal to do so. Mm. The other thing was we were never as interested in those days uh, as to the rankings of universities as we are now. Um, So um, it really just occurred that if you... And also, there were only two law schools in the state. That was at
1: Griffith
2: and No, there was no Griffith Law School. Uh, Griffith mm. didn't have a law school. There was a Griffith University, but there was no law school. Um, there was QIT, Mm-mm. as it was, and it had a law school, uh, which had only just established a couple of years before. And that was it. There was no law school at James Cook and no law mm. school anywhere else. So um, it was either – you either went to UQ or QIT. And um, – it was it, it was pre before the Dawkins reforms, mm. so there were as you, very few universities, and also entrance was very restricted. And but I, I I I had no thought that I would go anywhere else
1: because it, had your parents gone to university?
3: No, no.
2: I was the first of my line to go to university. Mm. My father was the first to get a trade, and his father was the first to pass the railway exam. <laughs> And he, therefore, he got on up under the platform instead so your, of being a ganger. Your,
1: your daughter will have great expectations.
2: Well, that? I don't know what she'll do. But um, uh, my, mine is the classic story of the Irish in Australia being advanced by education.
1: Mm. Mm. So, did you have to pay for university? No, no?
2: no. Courtesy of uh, the Whitlam government, university was free. Right.
1: Exactly. That's what I like. I think that allowed a lot of people who didn't have the means to go to university for the
2: first time. A whole class of people. Yes, I don't put myself in that class. Mm. No, that would be pretentious of me to claim that kind of working class status. Yes, I was at boarding school on a scholarship, but Mm. my father did then pay for all his other children to spend at least two years um, Mm. at boarding school. So the money could have been found mm. in some way. Secondly, I um, I'm cocky enough to think that I might have got a Commonwealth scholarship. Mm. I mean, they were, you know, they were competitive, oh, yeah. but they were not impossible. There are uh, the scholarship I received later, my graduate scholarship, was far more difficult. Far fewer of them were awarded. Mm. Than, than were Commonwealth scholarships. You know, there, there, there could be as many as 50 or 60 of those awarded mm. in a state each year. See, so, that's not many, though. No wonder. No, I'm talking about probably mm. just in the law school, yeah. maybe. Well, half, I mean, not half the law school, but a third of the law school or quarter of the law school could have been on scholarship.
1: Yeah.
2: So, and that would have been the case across all the other universities. There were a lot of Commonwealth scholarships. So I... I, I I doubt that finances would have stopped me going to uni if I'd made academic entry. My dad would have done somehow made it happen, and so um, would and I suspect I might have had a fair chance at a Commonwealth scholarship. So I, I don't want to pretend that Whitlam was the only reason I got to uni. There were blokes in my law school, however. Oh yes, I knew blokes who were competent enough students but not great. Hmm. but who came from poor backgrounds, proper, proper poor backgrounds. Hmm. And I think they would have struggled to be there but for, uh, you know, the Whitlam reform.
1: So. And I think a lot
2: of women would have struggled. Oh, no, I, I agree. On it. I, I, what I've just said, I said blokes too. Yeah. Didn't I no, say that? Yeah, no, and no, no, I no. apologise for that. There's no question there would have been a gender bias there. Yeah. Any time there's an economic pressure... Particularly in those days, they would have also been followed with it an exacerbation due to gender. Mm. Uh, families quite wrongly would have not put in the effort to put a girl through uni that they would have put to put a boy through. Would my father have made that choice? Look, he, he he's a man of his time. Mm. Big supporter of my sisters getting as much education as they could. Um, almost all of them went to university. Mm except the one who deliberately chose not to. So um, I don't know. I think if one of my sisters wanted to go to law school and we didn't have the Whitlam reforms, Mm. he would have supported that too. So, yeah, no, I... um...
1: Well, that's a pretty...
2: But it's all a big ask. I mean, this is a man with nine kids who ran a small little shop in a small (laughs) country town. How he did it all, I do not
1: know. And how your mother did it as well.
2: She, mighty woman. A mighty (laughs) woman. My father always said, I run a small business... And so does my wife. (laughs) That's what he used to say. He meant it too.
1: Well, it's true. He meant it too. I was speaking to someone a few months ago. And when he
2: got his Order of Australia, he said, Mm. this belongs to my wife as much as it belongs to me.
1: And why did he get his Order
2: of Australia? Well, uh, a combination of several things. One, Mm. he um, founded Lifeline in our town. Oh, really? Uh, I remember the meetings used to be in the kitchen. And he also uh, was the deputy mayor of Dolby uh, for ten years, and on the council for fifteen. And his particular interest was water security, ahead of his time. Yeah. Believed it was the most mm. important thing, and he was ended up uh, being for many years chairman of the Condamine Boulogne Water Authority, one of the most politically sensitive water authorities in the country because it's the head of the. Murray Darling. Oh, right. It's the beginning yes. of the Murray Darling system, and uh, and it had Kobe Station on it in it as oh, really? well. Yeah, so he was chairman of that authority for a long time. Right. So I think in a variety of levels of community service, mm. Hayley, w- w- why he got that call. Was he as good a talker as you, though, Paul? What uh, good is? You're just. What is good? I mean, I talk a lot more than he does. That doesn't mean I'm more effective. <laughs> He's, a, he's more guarded with his words, but they are said, you know, well. Mm. well. And he did sell a fridge to an Eskimo. He didn't.
1: He did. <laughs> You're pulling my leg.
2: No. <laughs> there was a girl from Dolby from one of the cocky families who'd gone over, like a lot of Australians do, and travelled. And huh? she travelled in in America and Canada. And she'd met a bloke who was an Inuit. Uh, You know, I think he went to university, but he was from an Inuit background. Mm. They married and they came back to Australia and they were buying stuff for their house. (laughs) And they had to buy a fridge and Dad was selling fridges. That's the business he was in. And uh, it turned out this bloke was an Inuit. He was a descendant of Eskimos (laughs) and Dad sold him a fridge. So he could honestly say, well, he sold a fridge to an Eskimo." (laughs)
1: It's a wonderful story. It's Paul. a true story. So you, after you finished law school, you were articled to
2: Chapel Seymour. Chapel Seymour was my articles, but I didn't finish them because really? Why I not? well, I got a scholarship to uh, do a master's degree in the United States.
1: Uh, graduate
2: so, scholarship. Yes. See, I got a graduate scholarship, so I I went, and one of the partners was a bit snarky about it. Oh really? He said, if you told us you'd applied for it, we mightn't have employed you. How long I said, were you there? I applied for it. I didn't have it. <laughs> you know. yeah.
1: so, how, long, how long were you there Chapel and Seymour?
2: Only six months.
1: And articles was a year or two No, years? two
2: years in those days. Mm. So when I returned from overseas, I had to do a legal practice course uh-huh. to get admitted.
1: Oh, so they already had brought in the legal practice? They had,
2: so. but not as a replacement for articles, as an alternative for articles. Uh-huh. So it didn't mean my intention to mm. do it the traditional way of the two-year articles,
1: Mm.
3: but
2: then the scholarship opportunity came up and you can't say no to that. No. So what did you apply? What was this scholarship? It was the Rotary Graduate Scholarship, Mm. only available to people whose parents have no connection with Rotary and um, it didn't pay for uh, accommodation and uh, uh, student fees at universities around the world. So I applied for four universities Mm. I was very excited to have been offered entry at Trinity as an Irish boy. Wouldn't that oh, have been really? lovely? But what happened? Oh, the money wasn't there. The, the, the scholarship committee granted it for the University of Oregon, yeah. which is where I did my master's. Oh, wow. There we go. So, um, and I did my master's in a combination of constitutional law and political science. combination that wouldn't be studied in those days in australia right Mm. but which in america is the go yeah they love that stuff so i did very politicized law which americans acknowledge freely is the case but which we especially in those days would have frowned upon i found it fascinating
1: well isn't that funny because the government is full of lawyers
2: Both, American and Australian government. Yeah, 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 it's full of lawyers. Oh, look, I flirted possibly with the idea of going into politics. Mm. Uh, And I I played politics in the playpen that is student politics at university. (laughs) Did you? Oh, I did. I was always running for something and uh, campaigning for something at university. But now I look back on it and I realise that it was the right thing for me not to join a political party. In Australia, you can very rarely have a big influence on politics without joining a party. And I just would have found the constrictions on your free thinking um, of party membership. I just... Um, I don't think it would have suited me. And uh, I, I, I
1: don't think it would suit me either. or would have suited me either.
2: Because I think so too. Mm. That doesn't mean we're better.
1: No, absolutely. Than people who
2: make that commitment mm. and are willing to navigate those rocky shores of compromise mm. and con- and uh, and conciliation that's necessary mm. to get through that and keep yourself where you in- yeah. personally integral. I, I, I'm not, but I, I just possibly I'm not as good as those people. I think I would have struggled with that, and I would have, I, I would have uh, been crushed by it. I think. And uh, my wife, who knows far more about politics than me, having been the parliamentary rounds person for Australian Associated Press in the Queensland Mm. Gallery, she said, you know, they would have eaten you. So I I I think it was the right thing to do. So I'm a politics junkie, Mm. but as an outsider, an observer, not a a player. The other thing is, I sincerely believe that I could do a lot and did a lot for the group's I, I uh, you know, wanted to support consumers, mm. underprivileged, well, uh, disadvantaged consumers particularly, I could do that without necessarily being in a political party. Yeah, it makes it a lot easier to lobby governments of both parties if you're not associated uh, with one. With one. So, um, and I, in my day, did a fair bit of government lobbying through the 90s yeah, the, and, and look, it's true. With, with the development of consumer credit law in Australia, mm. I was, I was at well, Queensland was the template state mm. for the old uniform consumer credit code. I was the point man for the entire consumer movement around Australia, feeding in proposed amendments to the uniform consumer credit code. I was directly dealing with Dick Viney, who was the um, the the person that the uh, that the um, Australian oh. Council of um, that the um, uh, U- Uniform Consumer Credit Code Management Committee mm. had appointed to manage that process. Mm. And so um, I was lobbying governments all the time. I met many ministers for consumer affairs. And when the Uniform Consumer Credit Code was passed, I was by invitation on the minister in the gallery that day. Oh, that was in the nice. Queensland Parliament. Um, and we had drinks afterwards. Uh, but,
1: I, I went to the Queensland Parliament when they passed the 48%
2: interest rate. Ah, uh, right. <laughs> well, that, there we go. That sort of stuff. So it was my my, my um, seven years as a community lawyer. Mm. Um, um, I got to do politics, but in the uh, non-partisan sense, the non-party mm. sense. I'm
1: going to ask you about how so, you got
2: so, there. So maybe... Maybe that was just as well then that I'd never joined a party.
1: Mm-hmm. You know? Because I wonder whether you
2: would have been as effective. Well, as a welcome, mm-hmm. dealing with both Liberal governments and uh, Labor governments.
1: Mm-hmm. You know? um, so, But when you are in America, what's this Taft Institute for Two-Party uh, Government? The, what Taft, you doing? It's the Taft, Taft
2: Institute for Two-Party Government, mm-hmm. right? It puts on... Now, American high school uh, teachers have to be um, have to upgrade their um, uh, their uh, continuing professional development qualifications oh, yeah. every year. So there's money to be made by putting on those courses, yes, and they, course. you put them on during the long American summer, so that the academics can so that the teachers can go to them um, yeah. during the summer. So the Taft Institute is dedicated to. Teaching the uh, structure and qualities and values of the American two party government system and uh, runs five such seminars across five different regional locations in the United States. Mm. One of those was at the University of Oregon. Oh, wow. And I had done some, um, uh, I'd already, well, see, the way my scholarship worked, I don't know if you want this full story, my scholarship was only for one year, Mm. right? And master's degrees are full. Two years. Two years. Yeah. So, um, you could either choose to do as the bloke who did it two years ahead of me did, uh, who I knew, uh, who did a law degree in the law school with me. Mm. It's not a law scholarship, but a lot of law law students seem to get it. Sort mm. of like right the roads. Yeah. Um, for a long time, overly dominated by oh, by yes. law graduates. Yeah. Mm. Anyway, um, uh, he did twi- did accelerated workload during the three terms, and did a summer term, finished the master's degree in one one calendar year, wow. and then went home with it.
3: Yeah.
2: Real swat. <laughs> and the, the next bloke who did it, who ended up as a journalist, not a lawyer, even though he had a law degree, and he's a musician as well, this fellow, really charming bloke, sort of the um, the uh, Joey, you know, from Joey from Friends? Yeah. A bit, oh, like, wow. him, a bit like him. He... That was too much fun. He had too much fun. He just did normal three years, came home, didn't get the, didn't get the master's <laughs> So then I got that same scholarship. And I, um, about halfway through the second year, whether I was making good contacts or my marks were good, I don't know what it was, but I was offered mm. a teaching fellowship. Oh, really? Which would then start in the second year. Mm. So the teaching fellowship would pay for um, uh, fees, and would pay for accommodation in a dorm. So um, I was right for the second year. But what about the summer? And what about you spending money? Oh well, I did do a bit of illegal non-green card piano playing. Oh,
1: okay. Right. Oh, yeah, I yeah.
2: did a bit of that. Yeah, I know. and you were allowed to work without a green card on campus. So mm-hmm. I did work in the kitchens. Yes, I did that as well. Which, but a bunch of foreign students were there. We were all doing that as well, you know. So, um, and the dorm I stayed in was a graduate dorm. So mm-hmm. half foreign students, half Americans, but all graduates. So not too much of those uh, undergraduate, you know, frat party hijinks you see yeah. in the movies. No. we were. They were all very serious insects, but also very talented, bright and interesting yeah. people, you know. Mm-hmm. So, um, anyway, so I needed... Stuff to happen yeah. for me in the summer, and this Taft Institute came up. I applied and got to be the assistant director. So I had to do all the organising and all, running it around. Did you have and to taught. teach him? I did teach a. That
1: I, was so. That would be so funny. An I taught Aussie teaching American. Well, no,
2: I didn't. Do, I did a comparative. All oh, right. Okay. I did a comparative session on oh. comparing the Australian electoral system to the American electoral system, okay. and they loved it. They'd never seen preferential voting. Uh I'd never seen anyone explain preferential voting, you know, um, how to get a quota, how to, you you move the votes up, you carry out, you know, all that stuff. I explained all that on the whiteboard and how that works and Mm. they were fascinated. So I really enjoyed it. It was great fun. Oh, good
3: on you.
2: So I had fun with that. And with that money, I then went around and visited people who I knew from the dorm uh, and spent a month traveling around the United States, staying at people's houses.
1: (laughs) Wonderful. Mm. So, but you then came back to Australia and you went to Ebsworth
2: and Ebs. Ebsworth? Well, I went to M.G. Lyons & Co., yep. which was uh, the last large general practice mm. left in the city, and I worked in commercial litigation.
3: Is that there. how you met
2: Fiona? Muirhead? Yes, friend. she was there. She was mm. at M.G. Lions & Co. Yeah. And both of us would have been left. Shipped, but wasn't she in the family law section? I think so. I'm I not think sure. she was in a, She was working, working for Nita Stratton Fun, yes, who was the family law partner, and, and saying that name and then saying the name of my boss, who was now Justice Michael Kent, and the criminal law partner was Justice uh, is Justice uh, uh, Martin Burns, mm-hmm. and um, the um, you know our senior partner was Mister Mister um, Mr. Jared Murphy, who ended up as the president of the Law Council of mm-hmm. Australia you know so and this was a firm with very progressive s- it was progressive in terms of promotion of women
1: mm.
2: absolutely and it also was people of profound uh, uh ethics and um commitment to the profession as more than just making money You had to make money yeah right but it was it was clearly a, a firm with a very strong uh professional ethics uh uh, spirit and culture. I I was very privileged to work there. It was mm. my boss, Michael Kent, was a wonderful boss. Taught me yeah. so much. I still write letters the same way. I'm sure, um, as he he's red ink all over my letters. Um, <laughs> this and, was before computers. Uh, yes, yeah, well, but all the partners were, mm. were, were people with with high standards, high and, standards.
1: And so, but you went from there to the community legal centre.
2: Unusual. Now, yes. I'd been volunteering. I'd been a volunteer at community legal centres and I'd been on the management committee of community legal centres but mm. never thought, given that I was a commercial lawyer, that there was a role for me to play. And Di Fingleton, who was the chairperson of the financial counselling service, convinced me that there was a role for me to play in that and uh, said, you should apply for an interview for this job. So I did mm. and I got it. So, And I was, I was at the cusp of... Do I make the commitment to, to go for associate mm-mm. or do something entirely different? Because I'd been there for three years. So I went off and did something entirely different.
1: And what do you think you'd learnt from that
2: experience? Being a commercial lawyer in the city. Oh, well, but... I know, from but, being I'd be a community lawyer. Oh, um, as a community lawyer, um, it probably made me who I was. Um, I'd already... It didn't make me a consumer credit lawyer, though. No? I had already done a couple of consumer credit cases. Oh, really? Because my boss had let me do one. Mm. Um, which Can was you late... remember
1: what it was about?
2: Yes, it's called yeah. Rafi... it's called Rafiki and Thomas.
1: Oh, that's right,
2: yeah. I was the solicitor in Rafiki and Thomas. I argued it without counsel. Oh,
1: I couldn't imagine. And I,
2: I dined out on that for many years. Yeah. <laughs> Rafiki and Thomas was the first case under the old Credit Act. Mm. And basically it was about the definition of consumer credit. Mm. What or not even that. What was the definition of credit for the purposes of the act? It was an instalment contract case. Mm. And um the defendant if is it okay to talk about that? Well, the I, wonder,
1: well I wonder about that because you won't repre- You won't represent
2: who were you representing? Rafiki. Penka. Rafiki. Mm. Well, I can talk about that. It's a published case. Yeah, it's a published but, case. Oh no, there's no ethics, I'm talking about time. Is it okay uh, for time?
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: For sure. Oh Oh, well, see, Penka Rafiki was a single mother who, with her boyfriend Thomas, they were kiddos, had been answered this ad in the in the Courier-Mail that said that bankrupts and pensioners can apply for land and build their own home and make a life. So they thought, oh, we have a better life if we do this, you know? So they were taken in the car from Logan out to bloody uh, King of Roy, I think it was, or further even west, and it was... Land being marketed by Washington Developments. Yes, Wayne Washington. But it was Wakeel Investments was the defendant Mm. in the Pika and Penka in the Rafiki and Thomas Mm. case. But it was an associated entity of Washington Developments. Mm. Anyway, we were in front of a magistrate, Mister Mackay, (laughs) and he was a magistrate who'd come up through the ranks of the clerks of the court. He had no law degree. He didn't think he needed one. And he certainly didn't didn't need to be bothered with complicated legal arguments. (laughs) And he ruled that because it was vacant land, for some reason, it therefore was not... That the finance, the instalment contract, was not credit for the purposes of the credit Code. Uh, What was then the credit credit. card? I said to him, you worship because in those days we used to say Your Worship, we didn't say Your Honour. I said, Your Worship, you realise I'll appeal this. And he (laughs) said, I don't care what you do. (sighs) So we appealed it to the district court, and we we were in front of Charles Brabazon. Mm. And Judge Brabazon, a very smart man, probably too smart for the district court, I think, um, he said, um, he said, uh, Mr O'Shea, what's that book you're looking at? Oh, it's in my annotated copy of the new act, of the new code, sorry, of the of the code. And he said, uh, look, it'll do your cause no great harm if you amend it to the court. <laughs> <laughs> Another thing occurred in the, in, after I did my arguments in that matter is that uh, I got a call from the uh, Supreme Court Library saying, look, We've had this request for any articles or documents you've got about explaining the new consumer credit code. Do you have? <laughs> so clearly the judge had been looking for those. Anyway, we won the case.
1: Mm. And then did. The case,
2: appeal? No. And as we were walking, but all the judge decided was that it was regulated credit. Yeah. He didn't decide the substance of the matter. No. Right. But as we were walking out, the lawyers for the for um uh, uh for the um. Washington. For the defendant, for, for, for Waco Investments. Yeah. They said, what do you want for settlement? Ah. Once it was regulated, they knew they were in trouble. Mm. They knew they were in trouble. I'd done a historical search on the property. It had, been, it had been bought, sold, defaulted. Sorry, it had been sold, defaulted, sold, repossessed, sold, defaulted, repossessed, sold, defaulted, repossessed five times in the preceding eight years. Wow. People couldn't afford it. No, of course not. They couldn't afford these instalment payments, mm. you know? Anyway, and they, so, they
1: still didn't get rid of them for many years. I or the
2: blockies, was, the Tara blockies. Yeah. And it's still Washington developments. The same model you sell vacant land to people promising them a rural lifestyle, mm. and they have no means to build and develop that land. So, how do they live? How no. do they eat? How do they sleep? How do they go to the toilet? <laughs> These things. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well. So, um, um, anyway, so I. I uh, Definitely made an enemy there in Mister Wayne Washington, mm. but I was not alone there. I think our profession, several of our people, did good work there, um, you know. Uh, and I think your office also would have, mm. in its early days, come up against Washington developments at some stage. I and installment in so. contracts. Did, we and,
1: did a lot of installment contracts,
2: yeah, work. for land yeah. and some of the Tara blockies and yeah, those. Yeah, I remember the yeah. Tara blockies. Yeah,
1: I wonder what those properties are worth now. Hmm. <laughs> They're still pretty rubbish.
3: Yeah.
2: It's pretty rubbish property. Mm. It's not good for... for.
1: De- did you ever go out to town I... and have seen those blocks?
2: Yes, I delivered fridges to them. When, <laughs> I, managed to, when I worked as a, as a fridge, as a sale, oh, between school and uni, I took a year off. Oh, did you? And worked in the shop, yeah. And so you delivered
1: fridges out to the... Well, I delivered fridges
2: there and everywhere, lots of places. You'd sell during the day, load up the ute and go out and do your deliveries. That's what (laughs) I did. Um, But, um, uh, you know, um, I um, thought that taking a year off between school and uni was my idea. Now as a parent, I know, no, you don't have that idea yourself. Mum and dad's idea, but they parented me so well that I thought it was my own idea. See, I, only, I was only a very young 16 when I finished ah. school. So to come, and they knew I'd have to go to university in mm. Brisbane. Yes. So they needed me to be another year older. So I took that year off. I spent most of it in Dolby, uh, working for the shop, some of the happiest time of my life, because mm. I'd been away f- at boarding school for five years. So to come home yeah. was lovely for me. And then I spent four months in New Guinea.
1: What were you doing in New Guinea?
2: Mission hopping.
1: Mission hopping?
2: Yeah. I I had a letter from the bishop and I would stay at various missions around New Guinea and the islands.
1: (laughs) Doing what?
2: Our jobs. At one place I repaired a dam or led a a party of locals to repair a hole in a dam. And in another place I organised the um, spare parts in a boat shed into, like, the big pile of spare parts I organised them into. So I sort of, I didn't pay my way, of course, but I, I, I thought I was contributing, you know. I've got it. Yeah, so <laughs> I, I was... I, I've I,
1: never heard of anyone bishop hopping. No, bishop mission
2: hopping, hopping. With a letter from, letter from the from bishop. Oh, no, no, if you don't mind living with religious communities, which I don't, you could go around the world for free. <laughs> oh, You could. The Catholic Church is everywhere. <laughs> yeah, are they? Ah, 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 ah. They could go everywhere. So um, um, I, I, if you don't mind eating and sleeping and living with religious communities, which, as I said, I don't, they're wonderful people. They're wonderful people. Almost, wonderful all, people, people, almost yeah. always. Yeah. Because they've decided to do something else besides make money. Mm. Um, um, uh, you could go around the world. Uh-huh. You wouldn't exactly have the most luxurious accommodation, but I didn't care. Oh. Anyway, the only trouble is when I came back, I had a couple of embarrassing fungal rashes. <laughs> And malaria.
1: Really?
3: So
2: I spent the first two years at uni trying to get over malaria, but I did, eventually I did. Mm. Eventually I did.
1: So you're at um, the Community Legal Centre. That's the Financial Council. What was it called, the Financial... Financial
2: Counselling Services Queensland. Queensland. How pretentious Queensland. was that? Mm. We boasted to be the only non-church-based uh, financial counselling service in the state and to be the lead agency for financial counselling. Indeed, in a review by the Department of uh, uh, Community Services, we were categorised as a lead agency because we did provide legal support to other financial counselling agencies and training Mm. and stuff like that. Because
1: that would have been one of the first financial counselling organisations that would have had a lawyer employed. I don't think
2: that they do that much. They still don't. No. No, no, no. Well we didn't have a community we did have a consumer credit legal service. No. We had no consumer credit legal service in Queensland, mm. we still don't. No. We have a fairly good service attached to Caxton Legal Centre. Mm. I mean well, that is all that's probably all Queensland needs. Mm. But we didn't have a standalone consumer credit legal service, no. Mm. I was it. I was the first consumer credit lawyer in Queensland. Well, which is pretty great. Oh yeah. I mean a lot of the time I was making it up. <laughs> I had to, you know, <laughs> pleading documents and um, defences and affidavits. There were no precedents. And
1: you were just I was making in the it up. deep end. I yeah.
2: was making it up, yeah. There was
1: no counsel to help you. In, in,
2: no, and, and no barristers knew anything much. No. so
1: Well, that's the problem.
2: A lot as well. of people didn't know. So that's why I often was arguing my own stuff in mm. the court, you know.
1: So what did you, well, you must have learned to... Think on your feet as part of that experience at financial
2: support. A little bit. Not always effectively, but yeah, mm. I gave it a go. As yeah. I said, I was in the district court arguing an appeal without counsel. I wouldn't do that now.
1: What
3: were you but arguing?
2: I was a young man then. You're scared of nothing, aren't you? Yeah. Yeah. You're scared of nothing. So, so what did was that, that case? That was Rafiki and Thomas, oh, Rafiki. which was in reported decision. Mm. and ended up changing the law for the whole yeah. of the country, as you know. Yeah, no. So it's, it's, you, you get out a um, textbook on even modern consumer credit yeah. law, it'll still cite that case. That's true. You know. So what prompted you to leave? Oh, the other thing I did was I wrote an article about
1: it. Mm. Oh,
2: and that is a bit of a forebear to the future, isn't it? That at Lyons, where... The mates were going off for a few drinks, which, I don't get me wrong, I enjoyed doing that.
1: <laughs> I'm sure you did.
2: After that case, I thought I'd write an article about it. Mm. And my boss, again, who's now a judge in the uh, Family Court Court of Appeal, so, you know, a big thinker himself, yeah. he said, that's a good thing, Paul, you write that article. You, know? mm. you do that. you outside of ours, but <laughs> you write it, you know, mm. and I'll, I'll, have, I'll read it for you and you know, that sort of thing. So it got published. Mm. Um, in a, a refereed journal, which is unusual.
1: Yeah, very uh,
2: unusual for... A, a young employed solicitor so. to be doing that stuff. Mm. So that sort of started to carve out a bit of ground for me as an expert in consumer credit law.
3: Mm. And as
2: I say to people, I was only an expert because I bothered to read the Act. <laughs> Other people didn't bother to read it. We
1: just we just went along and we had, argued, I don't know. We had a go. It. We well, because you we were
2: in the same in the West. Wouldn't you have been in the same over at Perth just winging it at times? Well, we were always winging it yeah. because
1: we didn't have any. We no one else knew Well, particularly in community legal centres, you had to do it. You couldn't get anyone. It was all pro bono. I was saying the other day, you ended
2: up. Winning. I got a couple of barristers eventually to spec it. Mm. And I've actually stuck with one of those guys to this very day. Isn't it? Because great? he was willing to spec for, mm-hmm. co- spec for costs.
0: That's yeah. it again,
2: he was only specking it for costs, not yeah. for his fees, but mm. just specking it for costs. But, of course, he, 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 he himself was relatively new to the bar, mm. was willing to have a go at anything, and he also believed in it. Mm. And I've given him briefs to this very day. And who's that? Anthony Collins.
1: So obviously you had this expertise in consumer credit. And yes. is that what... Which just the,
2: evolved by accident. So yeah.
1: did the university... Was the university looking for lecturers in consumer credit or how
2: did you move to the UQ? Well, I'd, be, I'd been uh, a community lawyer for seven years. Mm. And there is no promotional path, as you know. No. You know, no um, that's it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, um, I was married. My wife and I were trying to have children. Mm. And... um. Um, she then had a very high pressure job, Mm. which we felt was a bit incompatible with what we were trying to do. Yeah.
3: Um,
2: and, um, so I was in this sort of place, yeah, yeah, a bit of a place and I'd done some teaching part-time. I'd been a part-time tutor at Griffith. My first job as an academic was at Griffith, so I'm not snobby about Griffith at all. No. At the newly founded Griffith Law School, Justin Melbourne, an old mate of mine, who you've interviewed, I think, Yes. He um, got me work tutoring. Mm. Right. So I'd done a bit of teaching. And um, a job came up, was advertised at the University of Queensland as an associate lecturer in the, in the commerce department, but law lecturer in the commerce department. Mm. No PhD required. Right? Which was important. Important because I didn't have one. Mm. But I had a master's degree. I did have a master's. Mm. So I applied for it, and the money seems low compared to a lot of the legal profession, but was still more than I was paid at the community legal service. And so I um, applied for it and got it. Oh, so. And you were there from, for 15 years. 15 years. For uh, only two years in the commerce school, and then mm-hmm. all the law teachers, uh, lecturers who taught mm-hmm. law in the commerce school—that's four lecturers and two associate lecturers—we were traded like soccer players <laughs> <laughs> over to the over to the law school to teach. Then back into the newly founded business school, who paid money to the law school for that, and I was one of them. Uh-huh.
1: So, and for many of those years, you were engaged in getting your PhD.
2: I, they're supposed to be gotten in six years part-time. Mine took 10. And now, that, I was only obliged to start doing that after I was offered a... I, my one-year contract was renewed, then it was renewed one more time, and then I was on to a five-year contract, which was conditional on PhD.
3: Uh-huh.
2: So I didn't actually start the PhD till 2002. Uh-huh. So I took ten years, but it should have only taken six. What was so challenging about it? I know. Oh, it's hard like, work. Yeah, It's bloody hard work. Yeah, it's a,
1: it's a, yeah but <laughs> I understand it's hard work. But and it's a new queue. Yeah, they're, they they
2: were, they they wanted bloody good. They were <laughs> tough. I thought I'd finished it. By the way, um, mm. I had a hundred thousand words written. My supervisor had left the university to go to take another position. Mm. The head of school said, "I said, what am I going to do?" And the head of school said, um, um, uh, "I'll, um, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll step in." And I said, "Well, look, I'm nearly finished. I've done a hundred thousand words." And he read them, and he said, "Yeah, yeah you've got a lot of words there, Paul. What's your thesis?" <laughs> he asked me, "What's your thesis?" He has, this is Professor Ross Grantham, one yeah. of my co-authors in yeah. this piece, this book, that book. He, um, you know, a mind very sharp, mm. New Zealand Rhodes Scholar, Oxford graduate, mm. yes. smart man. And he um, he said, well, what's your thesis, Paul? Forcing me to identify my premises, my conclusions, to almost syllogize what mm. was actually a lot of waffle. <laughs> He had form with this because he'd done it with one of my colleagues who also had said, I'm nearly ready to submit. Her supervisor retired. Ross took over and said, oh, no, you're not. (laughs) (laughs) So I turned what was a lot of research, a 100,000 words worth of writing, Mm. crystallised it down to a proper thesis, a proper argument about a proposition. Yeah. And it ended up only 80,000 words, but a much better Uh
1: So, we were talking about your, um, the difficulties in getting your PhD
2: and
1: the fact that you then ended up crystallising it down to 80,000 words. And And
2: a much better document.
1: And what was it about?
2: It was about reinstating the place of consumer law within contract law. Mm. and identifying the limits of what consumer law could do. Mm. The intellectual, uh, it's not a ruse, the mechanism, the intellectual mechanism by which I did it was that I said consumer law is contract law.
3: Mm.
2: It's not regulation because if you merely place it as regulation, it becomes essentially political, doesn't Mm it?
3: Yeah.
2: You know? And I know that's, I'm not a Pollyanna. I know that's real. Right? Mm. You know, we've had to negotiate that all our professional lives, yeah. you and I Loretta. Yeah. But I didn't like that.
3: Mm.
2: I'm such I'm still such a lawyer mm. that I wanted consumer law to have a place within within contract law, within the common Gee, law. I
1: never, thought, I never thought anything differently, really. I
2: know, but a lot of our mm. colleagues don't. They just see evil, crush it with legislation. Yes. Little realising that once you do that, you give so much more power to the state.
1: Mm.
2: And I once saw a production of The Crucible as a very young man
3: Mm.
2: (laughs) at the old SGI theatre in in Brisbane with John Wood in the leading role. And I walked out of there. I was keen on this girl, but I was very distracted from the girl. (laughs) I just felt... I know where I must always stand mm. with the person under the crucible against the state,
1: mm.
3: against
2: the greater power. The common law is good like that.
1: It does have some real
2: benefits. The from... common law is good. I know it can be manipulated mm. by the powerful against the weak. And this is why consumer law has a special place, an enclave. Mm. I wanted to place consumer law as an enclave within contract law, mm. not as something outside it. Right, And... I identified that there are three inequalities mm-hmm. right, in consumer law, namely inequality of information, inequality of bargaining power and inequality of what I call uh, litigious power, which Adrian Evans down in South Australia used to call enforcement power. Mm-hmm. But I call it litigious power, being coming from a commercial litigation background. Yes. So um, when those inequalities exist in a structural way not in a circumstantial way yeah. right but structurally in other words always yes they're all if they're always there then you don't have general contract law because why because and this is my John Stuart Mill fundamental liberalism coming out you don't have true freedom of contract no if you have freedom of contract then the common law should apply i'm sorry you, you're free to make bad bargains. You're free to make bargains that you couldn't predict the outcome of. That's life. Yeah,
1: and I think still that's the underlying premise of the, the way that uh, the law
2: it. Yeah. And that's the way the law should be, mm. I believe, because of freedom. Yes. Freedom's a good thing. Mm.
1: <laughs> we right? want
2: to keep it. We want to keep it, right? But if there is a structural inequality of bargaining power, information power, and litigious mm. power, you don't have true freedom. The consumer no. in a consumer contract doesn't have true freedom. Therefore, there should be interventions, regulatory interventions to, and this is the other part of what I do, I justify the intervention and I delimit it and I help actually to characterise it. Mm. Your, inter, your regulatory interventions should be what is necessary to re-equalise freedom of contract mm. and no more. No more. Mm. Right? So your information, yes, some there must be some mandatory disclosure, but not volumes of it, not huge amounts that does no good. You should use you should use empirical evidence to identify the the critical. the critical and salient mm. and important things that will mean something to the consumer and convey them in a format that means something to the consumer,
1: and and maybe in future it needs to be very individualised as to what
2: that. Well, the, the 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 modern technology
1: mm. well,
3: can make up.
2: could can help that to individualise it and and um customise it mm. so that it is a more effective. Yes. You know, Therefore, legislation needs to set that benchmark, right? Mm. And then the operationalise of that could be left to more, say, softer regulatory instruments that are responded to in a more, shall we say, responsive regulatory way.
3: Mm.
2: A phone call, a conference, yeah. a meeting, you know, not necessarily prosecution, in order to achieve the best outcome, which is informed consumers,
3: yeah.
2: right? Secondly, secondly... Uh, um, um, inequality of bargaining power, Mm. right? The remedy for that, of course, the most most simplistic remedy, which Australian governments really haven't adopted for decades and generations, Mm. would be a standard form contract.
3: Mm.
2: And um, mandated by, you know, legislation. So that's not going to happen. No. No. And despite the fact that industries ask for it, and consumer groups have asked for it,
3: mm-hmm. government's
2: never going to do it. Maybe they're wise. Maybe they're wise not to. Maybe governments shouldn't be in the business of writing everyone's contracts. <laughs> Maybe true. they shouldn't be. Um, but there's no question that the the mythical, you know, shall we say, Hobbit Hobbiton view of the common law with a little small village where everybody knows each other and freely negotiates their contracts with each other, you know, mm. uh, that a lot of the common law is based on, it uh, doesn't exist. You Once in a, in a post-industrial society, um, standard form contracts are the norm. So what's the, what's the way to help yeah. equalise um, inequality of bargaining power? Unfair contract terms legislation. Mm. So unfair contract terms legislation is a remedy for the inequality of bargaining power, and it's good consumer law.
1: And we have seen a really good example, like the contracts for the sale of land are standardised, standard
2: yep. form contracts, and they work well. Very no, well, that's well, that's pretty, but that's pretty, mm. ah. Now you're you know you're getting beyond me there. Mm. You're getting into an area which I wanted to research with Justin,
3: mm.
2: in which we um, never quite got there because we didn't get up with the money because it would have been a big job. Mm. But the idea that the creative commons kind of thing, Mm. like the REIQ, will develop a standard form contract which will address these issues without the the mandate of the state, right, but as a result of the Mm. industry responding. Beautiful idea, isn't it? Yes. Very hard to understand and and deal with conceptually.
1: Yeah, and how did that develop?
2: You that know, idea, that project.
1: Well, that, pro- no, well, that project. No, that project to RARQ, you
2: know, the standard. Oh, just over time. Mm. Over, it's, a, it's an iterative and evolutionary rather than revolutionary process.
1: Mm.
2: Now, the third inequality is inequality of litigious power. Yes. And really, it is both absolute and relative.
1: Yeah, <laughs> it's absolute. The
2: absolute it? power is... The, the providers of goods and services, particularly in consumer credit, are always going to have more money to spend on mm. lawyers than the consumers. Yeah. But worse than that, it's relative. For them to get a decision in their favour will affect hundreds of thousands and maybe millions of dollars worth of contracts. Mm. But the consumer, only their own little contract is ever at stake. Yes. So it's always worth more to them to spend more money. Mm. And the third inequality in litigious power, is, and it's so prosaic, you'll grin. But it's, uh, uh, you know, as a bloke who runs a small business, it means something. Every cent spent on prosecuting a consumer credit or consumer law case generally for a provider is a tax deduction. Yeah. By definition, almost every cent the consumer spends is not. not. Mm-hmm. There I we go. So that. we've got a massive inequality. How do you address that? You address that with industry-based external dispute resolution schemes. Which we've got. Which we took years to develop, and I'd like to take some credit for being there in the early days, pushing for that. And still, I'm active in that space as a panel member of the Australian Financial Complaints Authority, having been a panel Mm. member of its predecessors for almost 20 years now. So, that was my thesis. Mm. Ways of addressing inequality in consumer transactions.
1: But you also, which is very
2: exciting. Sorry to bore you, but you did ask no. some. You asked an academic about his thesis. No. It's a dangerous thing to do. <laughs> it's a
1: wonderful explanation. But you were also foundation co-director of the UQ Pro Bono Centre, which has won a lot of
2: awards, hasn't it? It's a little won. bit. It's won a few awards. Yeah. I'm very proud of that. Mm-mm. If I can look to life as a legacy, because the legal service of which i was director exists no more Mm. um luckily those decisions were made after i left Mm. but um um the i'd always thought we should have a clinic at uq Mm. and i always thought that we could integrate the clinic with some community activity Mm. and i always wanted it to be consumable well, I wonder why. Yeah, so it was all a bit selfish, really. Yeah. But <laughs> so with great help from a wonderful colleague who was a partner at one of the big firms then, Randall Dennings, mm. and a little bit of help from your predecessor at Legal Aid, Simon Cleary, mm. we had coffee one day and we thought something could, and then we had a coffee with Tony Woodgett, yeah. who was then the director of the Queensland Public Interest Law Clearinghouse. mm as a result, we got a clinic going, which was a consumer law clinic. So um, six students were uh, invited to do a course in which they were prov- helped in a supervised way provide legal advice and work on small, minor assistance consumer law cases mm. sponsored by the um, the Public Interest Law Clearing Ouch the QPILCH, mm. with a solicitor who was donated for that first year by Clayton News. Amazing situation. Mm. That worked so well. It won prizes. It Mm. drew a lot of attention. And then we piggybacked on that to get another one going because Elizabeth Shearer, the president now of our branch of the profession, who I went to school with, Uh she beat me at English. Uh She's too smart. Um, She had done a Churchill Fellowship in the States on the concept of filling the gap between fully funded legal aid and Mm. um, people who didn't qualify, who Mm. needed to go private. She developed this concept of minor assistance, minor matter Mm. assistance, a perfect venue to have yet another clinic. So we had a legal aid clinic and a Q-Pilch clinic going. So I was running two of those. Then... Tamara Walsh came over from QUT with an urge to do street law. She was mm. into street law as a concept. Mm. So we had a street law kind of clinic established. So we were running all these clinics. We were Students were getting excited about doing them, or they were allowed to get credit for them now as a course. Mm. So a lot of students were applying for them. We ended up far, far more students applying than we had places. So there was this unmet need. Anyway... With the support of the newly appointed head of school, Ross Grantham, he said, maybe you should... We went to him, Tamara and I, and put a proposal to him for a centre that would run the clinics. It would provide some sort of roster, right, Mm. for these students who didn't get on to the clinic to be available for other pro bono activities, which we would find. Which weren't necessarily a full semester commitment, mm. and Tamara had the idea for some sort of pro bono research uh, project, which she called mm. the um, the uh, Hastings Street. No, where was Caxton?
1: Caxton Street.
2: No, no. no, it was another project, Manning Street. Manning Street. The Manning yeah. Street project, which would be a uh, a pro bono research project based trying to get stuff out of um, the case law experience of. Community legal services yeah. to use that for research. I mean, you have to say it's got a good service a good service for an academic yeah. as well, yeah. but it could have done so much social good. Yes. You know, it could have so much good. So that was her thing. So anyway, we luckily we had a head of school with the vision to see we had something going, and he supported mm. it. And that's how we started. Oh wow. And it's still now there today. Got the U- Twelve years later, which is we critical. still have the UQ Pro Bono Centre. I think it'll last. Mm. The UQ model was discussed at the National Pro Bono Conference uh, a few years after we established, a way of having university-based pro bono services. Arthur, I think it's a wonderful thing. And it's been adopted by mm. other states, yeah. by other universities.
1: And so what was more satisfying, the teaching or the research?
2: Teaching's more fun. Mm. This is probably why I'm not still there. because the University of Queensland is one of the great universities Mm. of the world. It's the Mm. 40th best university on the planet. Mm. It's a research-based university. One of the few times I actually agree with the marketing department is that their motto at the moment, their slogan is creating change. Mm. Not teaching change. Not preparing you for the real world.
3: Mm.
2: not, you know, a glorified TAFE. No. They see that the role of a great university is the role that it's been for centuries, a centre of new learning. Mm. Um, So at the University of Queensland, the emphasis is on research. Mm. And yes, I did some research that I was proud of that did change the world, Mm. (laughs) got legislation changed. That has been cited in Acts of Parliament.
3: Mm.
2: That's wonderful. And probably that's the thing I should be proudest of. It's so hard. Yeah. It's very intellectually and physically draining to do it. And it's not as much fun. It's not as much fun as teaching. No. No. It's not. Teaching is more fun. There's no question. Teaching is a way you express who you are at the time.
1: Yeah.
2: You know, well, and, and that's fun.
1: And it is nice, y- young students.
2: Oh, no, I don't a, really care about them.
1: Oh, you just can't count. Well, you know, just, you're, you're just like the performance.
2: The show. Aspects.
1: Yeah, <laughs> absolutely.
2: And if they get something out of it, good on them. <laughs> um, you know the old line. Primary school teachers love the kids. Oh. Sec- secondary school teachers love their subject. <laughs> and university lecturers love themselves. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, look, I, and since I left the university full-time staff in 2015, I have taught almost every year since then. Mm. So my involvement in the university is as a teacher yes. still, in commercial law and also I've taught mm. consumer law as well at the master's level. Mm. And also I've guest lectured into the MBA program as well. So, so uh, my involvement there has still been as, as a teacher.
1: In amongst all that, you found time to start your own law firm. Why?
2: I love clients. Yeah, I love solving the problems. Mm. And yeah, the... I really enjoyed. It. Look, um, I'd always, I'd never given up my practising certificate, even that, uh, all, all that time, all that time. No, no, I've, I've been continuously in the fund mm. since 1989. Uh since my admission in 1989. December, Mm. late 1989, so really 1990, but you know what I mean. Um, And most years I only did enough work to justify paying the insurance. Mm. Not much more than that. At the university, we were allowed to do up to a day a week on Mm. private consulting of whatever that was, provided you fill out the form and declare, and if you used university resources, you paid for them. If you didn't, you didn't. Much better deal than QUT, by the way, where mm. they take a fixed percentage of all your private consulting, allow you to use university resources, but take a percentage twenty percent of all your consulting. Wow, that's yeah, quite high. Yeah, it makes it disincentivizes it. Mm. Um, so I always did some. We, my wife and I, took long service leave, mm. and our intention was to go to Europe, base ourselves in Italy, and and we're, with my relations, my wife's relations, mm. and, and see to Europe. My wife's father became ill and we couldn't go. So I'd taken the long service leave. So I had four, five months and um, a bit of thumb twiddling going on. So I ramped up the practice. Mm. See, this is not a sabbatical. In a sabbatical, you're expected to produce research at the end of it, right? I'd taken sabbaticals and done research, right? This was holiday, this was long Mm. service leave. So my time was my own. Mm. So I ramped up the practice a bit from where it had been
3: Mm. and loved it.
2: Absolutely loved it. Got a couple of big things going on. Mm. So I came back to uni and, look, I thought more of the same. Mm. Another book. Some more articles, you know. So I gave six months notice, full time that they could then Mm. have plenty of time to replace me. And rented premises, and the rest is history. Yeah, but despite that, the university still gets me back every year, almost every year since two thousand fifteen to teach a commercial.
1: Because you do love that teaching, and you're a good I do. Teacher. I say
2: yes to it, and mm. they seem to think I do a reasonable job.
1: And now, a quick foray into your life outside the law. Um, I know your daughter Olivia and wife Rosa been your biggest supporters.
2: Um, Absolutely. But Couldn't have done it without him. No.
1: And so what's this involvement with the Ignatius Theatre Company? Oh, that's a long time ago. <laughs> that was before I was married. Really? So I thought this had something to do with with Rosa and Olivia.
2: No. No. <laughs> no. I was a young employed solicitor in the city in the early 90s. So what? And what? I was... Um, I was Uh, I loved musical theatre, and so I joined a musical theatre company. It was a pro-am, so Mm. your director and just leads, they were professionals. Yeah. uh, And your musical director was a professional, but everyone else was an amateur. And And I was one of them. Oh, wow. (laughs) And it was tremendous fun. Tremendous fun. And
1: why didn't you, do do you think you, again, didn't you think you were good enough
2: to pursue a career in the arts? No, I'm not. I'm not. I know the Mm. difference. Yeah, when you play, when I would play the piano, oh, I would play. A rigid, oh, I remember I play a music. I, I play something, mm-hmm. and someone would come over and say, "Oh, you must be a music student," mm-hmm. and I'd say to them, "No, I'm a law student, or I'm am I'm an article mm-hmm. clerk lawyer." Their faces would fall, and they'd go away sad because everybody loves musicians. Nobody loves lawyers. <laughs> no, but I also would know that they didn't understand that my level of skill. Mm-hmm isn't as good as the real musicians. And no. only if you get to a certain level do you know the difference. And I knew the difference. Real musicians were much better than me, much better, and more artistic than me. Uh, yeah, but more, you've got the more, performance more skills. More creative than you've, me. You've got the performance skills. Oh, my! A couple of my brothers and my one of my sisters has those. Mm. I don't. No, I don't. I know the difference, and okay. they do too. In my family, I'm not the first one asked to perform. Okay.
1: <laughs> that must be an O'Shea gathering. It must be something to witness then. My
2: um, my daughter says she can't wait for the first time her boyfriend. She, my daughter has a boyfriend. Oh. Uh, that my boyfriend has to experience a full on O'Shea gathering. <laughs> with the um, breaking into song in the middle, like a Broadway musical in the middle of life, (laughs) as they do.
1: Um, I was going to ask you just in closing about any networking tips that you have for young lawyers Mm. or anyone really wanting
2: to... Don't go to something, anything, whatever it is. Don't go to something just to network. Mm-hmm. Go to something because you think you'll enjoy it. Mm. That the speaker interests you. Mm. If it's an art show, if the art interests you, if it's a musical performance or a show, that the show will interest you. Mm. Don't only go to network. Possibly this is why I never would have succeeded in politics. I would find that so soul-destroying.
3: Mm.
2: Yeah, I do too. I... I only went to the Law Society President's opening drinks this year because my long-term friend that I've known since we were kids is now President. Mm. And I wanted to be there to tell her how proud I was of her. Mm. You know, Elizabeth. Yes. And um, um, not that the bloke the year before isn't a bad bloke either, actually. I no. know his dad quite well. You know, he's a fine fellow, the fellow the year mm. before. But uh, you know, um, don't go to something just to network.
1: I think go that's there because really... you'll
2: enjoy the night anyway. The other thing is, when you're networking, do not go straight to the work. A, it's obvious, and B, you'll feel a bit dirty afterwards. Mm. C, and this is now a neat, neat trick, if you don't know much of, if you don't know what to say to someone, Ask them about their kids. They'll
1: always talk about their children. Everyone, <laughs> Unless always, they don't have any.
2: <laughs> then they'll tell you. Oh, yeah. And that's something to talk about. Mm, that's true. Yeah. So about networking, the first point is don't go to a networking function just to network. Mm. That's soul-destroying. Mm. Go to it because you genuinely would like to be there. Yeah. If you then network, isn't that great? Yes, it is great. Be... Don't jump to work early mm. in the conversation. That is gauche and you'll feel bad about it.
1: Jeez, I've never and heard that see, word used in conversation. Gauch. Gauch. I always thought it was Gouch. <laughs> you being German would mm.
2: pronounce it gauche. Yeah. I think the English say gauche. Oh, uh, it would be. Yeah. yeah. And the third point is if you're really lost for something to say to someone, ask about their kids
1: okay well i'll remember that there we go um thanks paul well i think that's a nice way to end it thank you paul for the most delightful interview um i really appreciate it if you want to find out more about paul there are show notes with each of my episodes including contact details for each of my guests on my website www.loretta Please drop me a line if you have any questions or know of someone who may be interested in being interviewed for this podcast. Generally, they should have a law degree, but they do not need to be practicing lawyers or have ever practiced law. You can contact Paul um, on LinkedIn or if you want to engage his services by in- uh, contacting the firm O'Shea Lawyers in Stafford Heights, Queensland. Thank you, Paul.
2: Thanks, Loretta.
0: Thank you for joining us on Lunching with Lawyers. If you enjoyed this episode or have questions or comments for our guests, head to the show notes for this episode and click on the contact links below. If you have suggestions, ideas or questions or would even like to be part of this series, head to the Contact Us page on our website www.lorettacreate.com.